Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Tonight is on psychological benefits of the state of awe encountering the sublime and why we want to cultivate this as a practice and uh, we're going to be covering all of uh, the numerous rewards and how we can go about experiencing awe not just as a, an infrequent event but is actually something that can be conjured on a daily basis, in fact, many times a day. There's two types of what we could call it underlying causative situations that actuate or induce states of anxiety. The first state is exteroceptive. It means we encounter a trigger in the world around us. Trigger is a sensation, an image, uh, a situation that is reminiscent of a past event that was emotionally threatening or wounding or traumatic. And encountering this stimuli activates in us a heightened, hypervigilant survival state. We go up into the sympathetic nervous system and fight, flight, fawn behaviors become endemic. And so, for example, if you're in a car accident, you not only hear the screeching of the tires and the seeing the headlights all in association with your body contracting as you expect the, the collision to happen, but then also as well, you might be listening to a specific piece of music on the radio. Today at the gym, they were playing Kylie Minogue's Can't Get You Out of My Head. So I'll use that as an example. Suppose you happen to have that on the radio. And um, suppose the car collision happens on a specific street or you see something right before it. So then later on in life, you hear can't get you out of my head. And even though it's a safe stimuli, it activates a state of anxiety. You start tensing. You have no idea why, because you don't really remember in the aftermath of the accident that that stimuli was present. So all kinds of neutral sensations, stimuli can trigger anxiety, and we very often won't even know why. And the work of Joseph Ledoux, the New York University Neuroscience Lab, goes into how the basal lateral amygdala uh, can leave us with so many triggers in life that can activate hypervigilance. But today, I'm not going to be really talking about external triggers. I've given many talks on it, and of course, you could always read the works of Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, or uh, Diedrich Fay's work, etc., to the second way that we activate anxiety is through mind-wandering, activating the default mode network of the brain. When we ruminate, when we become preoccupied, when we detach our thoughts from the present time and we get lost in thought. Now, why is getting lost in thought so, in, so capable of inducing stress and anxiety? Well, we can approach it from many different angles. I mean, the most basic is that um, due to the regions that are involved in mind wandering, especially lower medial regions of the brain are directly exonically connected to the amygdala, which can activate uh, fight, flight, fear. It's, uh, it can be, a, you know, especially when we understand the kinds of thoughts that mind wandering creates, then we understand why the tendency to ruminate or become preoccupied or lost in thought can be associated with such uh, heightened states of anxiety and stress. So first of all, default mode network or mind wandering 
is associated with a couple of different types of thinking. One is mental time travel. When we are lost in thought, we're far more likely to call to mind past interactions that were either pleasant or unpleasant, generally the latter because the brain has negativity bias. We tend to remember negative events with five times the intensity than positive events. And also imagined, we also can imagine future possible outcomes or situations. And this, due to negativity bias, also is associated with catastrophizing. The regions involved are medial, the medial temporal gyrus, etc., the temporal cortex. Another, so not only do we time travel either to the past events or to future events, but when we're lost in thought, we also tend towards what's called self-referential processing, which means we think about ourselves. Uh, when we're told, uh, when in fMRI scans, when we're told something that someone said about us, the ventral medial default mode network lights up. Um, it also lights up when we think about ourselves and when we try to compare ourselves with others. So the two most frequent kinds of thinking involved in mind wandering, getting lost in thought, is jumping to the future or the past, i.e. not staying present, and thinking about ourselves. Killingsworth and Gilbert in their massive, massive study called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, one of the most important clinical studies of the last 15 years, did a study of 5,000 people in 83 countries and found that people are mind-wandering almost half of their life while they're conscious, 47% of the time to be um, accurate. So half of our waking hours, we're not paying attention to what we're doing. We're lost in thought, in a delusional fog, thinking about either what might happen to us in the future, or things that might have, ha or things that happened in the past. What's also really noteworthy about this study is that we're by far and away less happy when we're lost in thought than when we're focused on what we're doing so significantly that it turns out that it doesn't really matter if we're lost in thought thinking about pleasant or unpleasant topics. Being aware of what we're doing is a far better predictor of being happy than being lost in thought fantasizing about, you know, how great any outcome in our life might be. Um, in fact, you will probably be happier if you, like I did earlier today, sit in a dentist chair getting an unexpected root canal because I was focused attention on the sounds and the sensations rather than if I had been sitting by the East River on a comfortable chair uh, lost in thought about what's going to happen to me in the future. In fact, that latter state being lost in thought about ourselves is synonymous with heightened activation of the um, not only the amygdala but also regions of the brain associated with uh, stress, hypervigilance, and so forth. The Buddha called default mode operation one of my favorite words, papancha. Papancha means the proliferation of thought. And in the Sabhasava Sutta, when he defines Papancha, the Buddha says, this is how one thinks inappropriately. What was I like in the past? What will happen to me in the future? Will I even be alive in the future? And so forth. So guess what? He's defining thinking about ourselves and speculating about the past or the future is for him what gives birth to papancha, multiplying weeds and forests of thought that cloud us in states of delusion and cause dukkha, misery. And he's not wrong. 
because we have the work of countless clinical psychologists to show to show us today that default mode mind wandering where we think about ourselves and what's going to happen and what do other people think about us and how do I match up and why are other people getting ahead in life or why am I not uh, as uh, rewarded as someone else activates um, essentially hypervigilance, anxiety, and repetitive thoughts. Um, a wonderful book that just came out recently by a, a very uh, well-known and established clinical psychologist, Ethan Cross's book, Chatter, uh, devotes a significant amount of research and reflects on a significant amount of research to just how much suffering is caused in our life by getting lost in thought. Um, the Buddha said in the Ball of Honey Sutta that almost all suffering stems from self-oriented thinking. That's how far he goes into uh, the root the root relationship between being lost in thought of ourself and suffering. Now, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is what we're doing the other 50% of the time, which is generally task positive network, where we're not lost in thought, where our attention and whatever thought we're having is based on actual present time events that are external. So when we're in default mode, lost in thought, it means we're in some way losing all awareness or a lot of awareness of the world around us. We're not paying attention to what we're doing. We're not noticing that we're chopping garlic or uh, that we're uh, sitting at a computer or whatever. We just are not paying attention to the world around us. We are now in a internal scape of images that we're conjuring up that are self-related. When we're in task positive, we're focused on something we're actually doing in the present. And the beauty of task positive is that it reduces stress. The lateral, inferior, posterior, temporal gyrus, yes, that's actually a region of the brain. I actually had to memorize it for this talk. I don't hope to ever say it again. But that region of the brain is not linked to, to um, hypervigilant states, to regions that are associated with withdrawal emotions and, and uh, that triggers a sympathetic nervous system. It's simply an evaluative region where we look at things in front of us and see how they're looking and then change a little bit what we're doing. For example, skateboarding, drawing, cooking, gardening, music, playing music on an instrument, uh, doing pottery, uh, embroidery, uh, anything that you do that focuses your attention on what's actually happening right now is evocative of reducing anxiety and reducing stress i.e. activation of your sympathetic nervous system and hypervigilant. The nature of the task is not particularly important so long as you're paying attention to what you're doing Killingsworth and Gilbert found, you're going to be happier. So immersing in anything that's present time oriented, even if it's just paying attention to your breath, whether the breath is, as the Buddha said, uh, long or short, deep or shallow, simply paying attention to something that's going on in the present, not being lost in thought, and we'll all be happier campers. In the Buddha's teaching, task positive thought was called Vitaka Vikara, and it was one of the uh, endemic not only to the uh, jhana states, but also to the wings of awakening. Vitaka Vikara is simply, the Buddha said, when we stop and evaluate whatever it is we're doing in the present moment. So evaluation and present time focus. This, when we're in it, <clears throat> doesn't add 
the sense of this experience or what's going on is about me. It relieves it. One of the most important emotional states that alleviates uh, self-fixation and self-referential thinking and thus the attendant stress uh, and anxiety that can be triggered by self-referential thinking is the state of awe and the sublime. So what is awe and the sublime? The sublime and awe is an emotional response to exceptional unusual stimuli, events that challenge our experience, that challenge our accustomed frame of reference, and experience that we can't easily interpret or make sense of. It's associated with states of wonder and surprise. Awe and the sublime is not a negative state. That's shock. When we are, when I was uh, watching the events of 9-11 in front of me unfold before my very eyes and seeing the World Trade Center on fire and smoke billowing from it, that was a state of shock, not a state of awe. Um, great psychologists that I admired, Dr. Kiltner and Jonathan Haidt, uh, Note that awe very often includes uh, a perception of vastness or immensity in size, but not only size, as they say, size doesn't only matter. Um, it also can be something that is of a scope or social import or of a complexity or something that just defies our easy understanding and triggers what they called a need to account, uh, a need to, to change how we relate to the world. Interestingly, now I know I talked about how the amygdala can trigger anxiety, which it does, and, it, and hypervigilance, but the amygdala also plays an important role in awe as well. Not only does it activate and uh, anxiety, but it also activates the positive state of awe and wonder when we encounter an experience that doesn't fall within our frame of reference. So there's been numerous, numerous studies which show how beneficial awe is to our well-being. One is that if you look at the neural basis of dispositional awe, which is a wonderful sort of meta-analysis of awe and all the roles it plays in well-being, uh, one of the first uh, notable conclusions is that it diminishes self-referential cognition, just like task-positive behaviors. Standing in front of something that's immense or wonderful or unusual or encountering the sublime uh, reduces all our uh, uh, cognition about what sets us apart, how do we compare with others, and it changes our sense of self to where we feel connected, not focused on what sets us apart. We experience ourselves as human beings, not as, you know, I'm this neurotic, you know, unusual person with all these uh, unique events that that's that define me and create my identity. Those who experience all has have been shown to experience far less catastrophizing and anxiety disorders. It in the studies of Rudd, uh, RUDD, it slows our perception of time passing. It makes moments just, you know, the same way that uh, a terrible event can stretch time, but all can stretch time in a positive way as well. When one encounters the sublime, we no longer feel ourselves in these little time chunks. We actually experience time as this vast open space. Scientists at UC Berkeley recently showed that conjuring a sense of awe for 15 seconds three times a day. So for 15 seconds, just three times a day over the course of three weeks, 
showed significant improvements in stress, reduces loneliness and symptoms of anxiety. So I'm going to talk about how we can conjure aura in a moment because you probably hopefully by now are a little bit interested in how can I get some of that. Before I get there, they also showed that conjuring awe helps us feel a sense of being not only timelessness, but being more mindful, which reduces, again, not only anxiety, but also depression as well, anhedonia states as well. It increases collective engagement, promotes integration with others. Our thinking shifts from me to we. And if you look up uh, the clinical studies and all the diminished self and collective engagement by Maruskin, M-A-R-U-S-K-I-N, uh, Laura Maruskin and Serena Chen delve deeply into just all the benefits of awe. Uh, Maslow, Abraham Maslow, the great famous psychologist, hierarchies of need, hierarchy of needs, showed that self-actualization and satis life satisfaction require regular states of awe. So, how do we get some of that awe? How do we how do we get some awe in our lives? What's in it? How do I how do I get some of that? Well, of course, awe is very often associated with encountering natural wonders. People think of the northern lights of Scandinavia or the North Pole, the Grand Canyon, uh, Mount Everest, the Great Barrier Reef, etc., as places that conjure a sense of vastness, as Jonathan Haidt points out, vastness can create a state of awe. But it's not just vastness and immensity that can create a state of awe. Uh, anything that defies our normal experience and asks us to take account, because we're a species that needs to interpret and make sense of life to feel a sense of control. Our ability to interpret and make sense gives us a sense that we can accurately predict the future. When we see something that completely stands outside of our frame of reference, then we have to stop and turn it into meaning, and that actually floods the left brain with dopamine and glutamates, and it, we feel good because we now have to integrate an experience that we previously didn't know or didn't have any account of. So, for instance, uh, being a species can create sense of awe. If the first time one sees a giraffe, or when I was uh, paddling and uh, off the waters um, in, a, in a kayak, I actually saw a whale come up, and that was a state of awe I experienced. When I was in Thailand and I spent a day feeding um, uh, elephants, like everybody who goes to Thailand does when they go to Chiang Mai, they always go and volunteer to feed the elephants. But that in inspires can inspire a state of awe when you're right up next to the elephants and you're cleaning them and feeding them. All can also be associated with man-made uh, 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 objects. For instance, when I was in Florence about 20 years ago, or more than that, probably about 25 years ago, I remember wandering around these little circular streets uh, that were kind of all of the same time period and all the same look. And suddenly it opened up into this amazing square. And right in front of me was this massive cathedral called the Duomo, this massive church. And when you see the Duomo for the first time, it, you, your breath stops. You look at it in a state of wonder. And you you feel yourself back in what must have been, you know, Renaissance when somehow they managed to create this massive uh, structure that so in its beauty and complexity outshone all of the, the structures and buildings around it. When I was a kid, my dad... Uh, took me to see the World Trade Center as it was going up. And that 
conjured in me a state of wonder because it was in a neighborhood at that point that didn't have very many tall buildings where it was located and, and suddenly there was this 110 story building that seemed to go up into the clouds um, all could also be inspired by looking at states uh, at works of art the first time i stumbled in a museum across picasso's guernica or Pollock's uh, Autumn Rhythm, a famous painting that's just overwhelming and abstract and doesn't look like anything I'd ever seen when I stumbled across it, or when I first heard the music of Steve Reich's his eight, Music for 18 Musicians, or John Coltrane's opening sax solo in A Love Supreme, or Nina Simone singing Mississippi Goddamn, all of these, the first time when I saw Public Enemy performing uh, right after they release, released uh, Fear of a Black Planet, and there was Chuck D right in front of me, and I experienced a state of awe. The first time I saw um, John Lydon, or known as Johnny Rotten, performing uh, public, public Image Limited back in 1980, and there was Johnny Rotten right in front of me on stage, larger than life, and I couldn't, I literally felt the hair in the back of my neck stand up, and my, it felt like I was electric, and everything about me was overwhelming. Um, but in that study I mentioned by at UC Berkeley, where they show the conjuring a sense of awe for 15 seconds, three times a day, had all these amazing benefits of reducing loneliness and anxiety and stress. What they actually asked people to do was to stare at their hands for 15 minutes and simply wonder at all the things their hands could do and how their hands actually looked, and how complex their hands were. They didn't ask somebody to simply, you know, go and travel to the Grand Canyon. They simply said, look at your hands, or look at the trees moving with the breeze was, was another. Because these are, are uh, um, objects or experiences that we take for granted that we don't really pay attention to and we literally don't become acquainted with how unusual and how complex and how difficult they are to assimilate when we actually have this sense of oh my god i've got these five fingers one of which is opposing and they can grasp and move and point and draw and all these things when we step outside of the idea and we actually look at the complexity of a real experience that it in of itself can conjure a state of awe that is deeply transformative and deeply uh, relieving of stress and anxiety. All can include the transcendent spiritual practices and mystical experience, experiences, chanting, trance, music and dance, being involved in tantric arts and tantric rituals, and meditation, all it can conjure up states of awe. For instance, simply when I was on a retreat many, many years ago at Spirit Rock, and I had spent a long time just sitting and paying attention to the breath, and then when you're up at Spirit Rock, which is in Marin County, right above San Francisco, and there are all these beautiful rolling hills, and I walk to the top of this hill, and they have these really beautifully placed benches and I sat in one and I looked at oh, everything in front of me in the sky and suddenly I was in a state of complete rapture and awe. I was experiencing the sublime where I was no longer in any way lost. I had no longer any sense of myself being separate or different or unusual or unlike others. I had the sense of being connected with everything around me, and it created this blissful state 
that was where my right hemisphere and my left hemisphere were both working in tandem, where awareness was asked to, I couldn't explain why this appear, this experience was so vast and important because I'd never looked at the sky the same way before in my life. Anytime we let go of all our preconceptions, our ideas about what experience will be like, and which is what the brain is generally doing, not really looking at the world. The brain tends to only use one-seventh of the things it sees from actual external stimuli. We tend to use six-sevenths based, six out of seven stimuli is based on internal expectations based on past or ideas about the way things work and the way things should appear. So actually when we start bringing in an immersive awareness of what's going on in the present in front of us, it alleviates that sense of I am unique, alone, unusual, different, small, uh, unimportant, or whatever, because all thoughts of a disconnected small self begin to vanish. Of course, people, and I'm not advocating this at all, but people very often experience states of awe when they take um, hallucinogens, which flood their brain with serotonin, um, uh, exogenous serotonin, and suddenly they experience um, synesthesia, and they look at their hands, and their hands are all beautiful and complex and all that. I mean... Look, I I was a kid in the 70s, so I did that all the time. So I experienced hallucinogenic states of awe as well as natural states of awe through spiritual practice. I have to say that the natural state is better, but that's just my personal experience. Um, in Hinduism and Buddhism, there's many words for awe. One of my favorite is Veda, which implies a state of reverence, and, and wonder for anything that's happening in the present. In, in Buddhism, Veda is associated with a state of wonder that when one encounters the Dharma, which is seeing the unvarnished truth, where we put aside our preconceptions and we actually experience something as if for the first time, not just looking at one's hands, but also paying attention to the breath and how each breath really feels without any preconception. So I could, of course, lead us on a, a, any meditation can conjure a state of awe, but I'm actually going to use one of the most mystical and unusual meditations in the Pali Canon. It's little practiced. If you go to most insight centers, you'll never be taught this meditation. Why? I think it's because it's so trippy and so out there and so in many ways psychedelic. It's called a Kula Sunyata and it's from, uh, it's one of the few meditations that the Buddha gives a step-by-step -step direction of how to do. And the whole point of this meditation, Kula Sunyata, is to rid our minds of all our preconceptions of the way things are and to open our minds into the vastness of the actual experience that we're in. So now, with your permission, I'm going to lead you on that Kula Sunyata meditation, which is the uh, meditation on emptiness. So, uh, while you get uh, positioned, if you um, would like, uh, in addition to the links I've posted about ways to support and honor George Floyd, if you in any way want to contribute to the work I do, um, Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So thank you for that. And now let's close our eyes and find the most comfortable position and don't try to look like you're meditating. Just look like you're sitting comfortably and relaxing. Don't try to look like all the images of people you've seen in uh, meditative practice. Just 
relax. Close your eyes. If you're sitting in a comfortable chair, that's great. You can do this meditation lying down on a bed or on a couch. You can do it lying down on the floor. You don't have to sit in any, uh, any posture or position. And so in this meditation, while often it can be practiced at first with the eyes open where we look at the world around us, we can also practice it with the eyes closed at the beginning, and that's how I do it, but you can use whatever manner you uh, prefer. But just bring to mind what the Buddha called the contemplation of the city or the town. All of the man-made objects created by humans that proliferate and without any judgment just bring to mind an image or open your eyes and look at just the world around you all of the objects and all of the buildings, cars, And now bring to mind contemplations or inner images of nature. So no longer reflecting on buildings and towers and cars and but just now trees, grass, bodies of water, without any judgment that this is better or worse than the man-made objects, just bring to mind images that conjure a sense of nature that is pleasing images of the ocean, images of walking on a, hiking on a trail, images of reaching a beautiful vista, looking across a scenic visage of 
Um, trees, etc. And now putting aside the contemplation of nature and bringing to mind contemplation of what the Buddha called rupa, the physicality of the body, the sensations of the body. Pay attention to right now whether you're breathing in or breathing out. And try to focus on the breath without any preconception of what breathing is like, as if you're visiting from another planet. You've never been in a human body before and you've somehow found yourself inside of an actual human body and you can actually for the first time experience yourself breathing. You have never experienced breathing before. What is it like feeling the belly expand and energy moving up into the chest and the chest opening up and receiving air and then a slight pause followed by the release really bringing to it an awareness of I've never really paid attention to myself breathing bring awareness to now some area of the body that you don't generally pay attention to. I'll use my right kneecap, but I could just as easily use the sensation of my left ankle, my right elbow or left elbow, sensations of my below my left shoulder, whatever, just find a region that you generally don't pay attention to and let's just be with whatever sensations arise in your awareness.
at this time, note without any judgment, whatever thoughts or mental content might be present in addition to paying attention to the sensations of your body, breathing, etc. What was the last thought you just had? Just note what it was. And now put the normal attention to thoughts, mind wandering, anything about ourself or the future or the past, anything aside, and just observe the mind when it's empty of visual images and inner chatter. Can you find those brief moments where you're focusing on a breath or sensations or the sounds around you, but there's no, you're not adding anything. You're not adding any thoughts or images. You're just aware of the sensations that are happening in this moment. Being, contemplating the silence inside, the One great Buddhist monk refers to this as the release from stress when we become aware of those times of emptiness in the mind where there's no thinking, there's no pictorial representations of anything. We're just fully immersed in the present the sublime relief from self-oriented thought. really focusing on the times the mind is quiet.
Next is to contemplate conscious awareness itself. And while we do this, we can release any sense of inside and outside, so we no longer think of sounds as coming from the outside and the breath as coming from the inside. See if you can reflect on how everything you've ever experienced has been in your awareness. where there is no inside or outside, where the mind is boundless, as big as the sky, and anything that passes through it, like thoughts are just clouds passing through. And you can do this by just noticing how many sensations you can keep in awareness. Or just notice when the mind feels open and spacious, not contracted around a thought, where it doesn't fixate on an inner image where everything that's happening is passing through awareness and just become aware of that capability to be aware. And lastly, a series of contemplations the Buddha teaches, teaches ends with untethered, unguided contemplations, which means release your attention from any topic, allowing whatever appears 
to arise and pass and pay attention to it as if you've never experienced it before without any preconceptions. So right now I can hear an idling Vespa outside along with sounds of birds and I can feel my hands resting on the chair and any of these sensations I could immerse myself in What is this experience right now? I've never experienced this in the same way before. A dog barks from the neighbor's backyard. Opening the mind to perception without any sense of we know what to expect. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and just allow yourself as much time as you need to open your eyes and bring a renewed openness, attention to the world around you. <clears throat> 